We have uh, Pastor Justin's going to share tonight. Yeah, that's great. Um, we have uh, what we finished one week of Bible school or two weeks, two weeks, and and we had a beautiful service this morning. And I want to just say a few things about it here. So turn with me to Ephesians. Chapter 4. I'm just so thankful for the elders and the trustees and our affiliation and the love, the humility, patience of the, the brothers and sisters here and worldwide, many places. I know that uh, Pastor Shabelli does Zoom meetings, and I do one tomorrow morning for India or in the afternoon. Um, the high school, the GGCA, the teachers, Pastor Barry, really is amazing. Uh, Pastor Butch with the motorcycle guys and Patrick and um, we were knocking on doors, Randy and Sturge and I, and and this man in the backyard said, yeah, I met this guy with a motorcycle, a green motorcycle. I think his name was Patrick. That's him right there. So, you know, Patrick, do you live here now? It's great. Good to have you. He lives here. So now we're all in trouble. Patrick lives here. It's good. Um, the newcomers, and you know how people come into the church and they're new, and it, it, like some people, they, they just need to get a Bible, and they're really new. They're really new. They just start reading the Bible and learning to pray, and the newcomers. So we have uh, Pastor Roger Robbins, Jr., doing the newcomers. Is it Tuesday night? Tuesday night. Uh, so we're going to start that up in the cafe. Uh, so we want to help them learn and grow. Uh, so we, we said this morning that, that there's so many misconceptions that people have about God. There are so many things. And the devil doesn't want you to know God. And he's talking all the time, every day in our culture, by all means, to prevent us from finding God. The devil blames the church, blames people. The devil says God is too hard. Um, the devil uh, says, you, you know, he's going to steal from you. He lies in the Garden of Eden. Remember? In the Garden of Eden, what was the lie? That um, you can eat of that tree and you will not die. What a lie. And, and you will become, if you eat of that tree, you will not die, but you'll become as a god. And um, the tree looks beautiful. And so there were temptations there. The beauty of it, reason, human reason, 
and putting it together, and and uh, they were wrong. They were wrong. They didn't have the right concept of God. So we drew this picture this morning, I think in the 11 o'clock. So if this is God, and of course it isn't. I mean, really, come on. Did you think it was? Did you think it was? So, so the world can have their own concept, like, like something of who God is. They can not even get close to who God is. Yeah, but the believer has, finds who is God, and, and this is not perfect. But actually, Romans 12.3 says that your mind is renewed so that you may know the perfect uh, will. Let me get it right. Uh, you might know perfect. Verse 2 it is, sorry. Your mind, be not conformed to this world. You know, the world will tell you, you know, they will tell you, but they will talk to you. They will, they will lead you. They will, they will give you information. They will persuade. They will convince. They will, you, you will be conformed to the world. Wow, that's a message right there. Be conformed to the world. Wow, I, I wonder how much of that happens to us. But be transformed. There's a, there's a secret in that word. There's something there that's not in the word conform. Conform is schematizo. It's like a, a plan, like a floor plan for a building, like a scheme, a, a, a plan. You know, get conformed. But transformed or be transformed is internal change in my mind where we get... We're, we're, we got God. God is with us in our heart and mind. And he's the right God, the real God, the true wise God. God. I found God. This is, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the evidence of God is the liberty, the liberty, the knowledge, the freedom from sin, the worship. You got God. So verse two, verse 2. Be not conformed to the world. And the world is always kind of phony because you copy. You copy it. You just go along with the group. You copy it. Everybody does it. You just copy it. But it's, it's, not, it's not there. It's not God. It's not real. Uh, so you should have discernment about what church you go to. Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to say that just to everybody all the time, everywhere you should have discernment that that man, and we, we pray for these men and, the, and women that minister in, in whatever capacities, but we pray that the Holy Spirit would use them and you discern the spirit of the ministry. You know a tree by its fruit. You know, the message, you've got your Bible to prove, to listen, and to hear the voice of the Spirit leading us in 
holiness. One of the things the world doesn't have and the, and the devil does not have is holiness. They don't know righteousness. This is God is righteous and he is holy and he is love. Good words. devil doesn't have any of that. Or he has it in a phony way. He doesn't have it in his nature. In him is is darkness. In God is light and no darkness. So he has it. So let's finish up here. Verse verse 2 says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have, we know, to use our diagram, I'd like to say that Jesus said, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, going away. No, we're, no, where are you going? We're, no, we're going to go with you. No, what, what do you mean? I, we were going to go, I will send another. And, and another, another who is like me, he will guide you in the truth. So it means that you and I have the Holy Spirit so that we could know God in, in, the, in the sense of the witness of God, the spirit of God, the truth of God, the nature of God. And this is one thing that the world does not like about us. Honestly, the thing... What, you think you know God, or what, you, you are the only one who has the truth, or what, you think God is not, well, he loves everybody, and so on. There are many messages, many messages. And I'll turn to the closing part of Ephesians 4, in verse 14. He has given the prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the church to be edified, Verse 12 is edifying, edifying the body. There's nothing greater than spiritual edification. It will carry you in your life. Spiritual edification, you look for it when you have it. You look for it, you have it, you get edified, you have a you, you are built up, you are believing, you are loving God, you are receiving, you are learning to be a servant. Another thing about knowing God is this word servant, which is also not in the world. Jesus was a servant. I mean, really, not just like when the television cameras are rolling, he's a servant all the time in his nature. He came not to do his will, but the will of the Father. He was a servant. That's when you know God, you, you actually end up with the spirit of a servant. Because the same Holy Spirit that anointed Christ and the nature of Christ is now revealed to us, and we learn what it is to be a servant. And we enjoy that. We, we learn it. It's, it's easy. It's it's our joy. It's hard for the natural man, but it's a joy and a privilege for us. Now, no, look at the verse here. It says, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. 
So beware, that is, things develop in our world that you're going to, they, they don't like the doctrine. They've already gotten rid of the doctrine, the whole idea of absolute truth and doctrine. And we are those that are embracing the doctrine. And we enjoy it because it is spiritual. And we are not carried about with every wind of doctrine. Now, when you, when somebody, when, when a little boy is a, says he's a girl and the teachers agree, that, that is so confusing to that child and it's so wrong. In my opinion, it's a form of child abuse. My opinion, those people should go to jail that are propagating it and doing it. In my opinion, it's absolutely, it's totally violates our understanding of what it means to be common, sensible, rational, reasonable, sensible people. But it's, from, it's God turning us over to evil imaginations. And we're voting for these people to go into office. Shame on us. We're putting them in power. And we will suffer for it because they will make decisions for us. Because we are voting and we are putting them in power. And that's like unbelievable. But are you tossed about like they are? And the other side of it is, in our country, there are people that are standing up. And in our country, there are people that are not being tossed around. And in our hearts, we are saying, I cannot lie. You can play your game, I cannot play that game. And I want to protect the children in my family and in my community as much as possible. And you, you know, you know how it goes. I don't want to get, but you understand what I'm saying. This is real warfare. And the only way I see that we have any way of making any change is by the gospel, by people getting rooted and grounded in their faith so that they are not misled. They have an open Bible and they're getting the concept of God more or less, they are getting it correct in their hearts. Really correct, they are. And they are not, look at verse 14. They are not tossed to and fro by the slight of men. You've heard the phrase slight of hand. You know, the guy with the, the, the shuffling the cards, or he's got the three, you know, the P is under one of them, they're doing the thing, and or the guy that's, you know, a robber, and he's kind of like, you know, hey, 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 hey. And then over here, he's kind of stealing your, your wallet. He's making noise over here, distracting you so he can pluck your wallet out of your pocket. You know, by the slight of men, they are lying. They are lying. All men are liars. They will deceive our whole society. But the church... No, that's, if we have the Holy Spirit uh, showing us the nature of God and we're enjoying it, and we have something that is so satisfying 
And it resonates in our hearts so that we can live our life in the presence of people in a communist society, in a Nazi society, in any society, in a Hindu society, in an Islamic society, wherever you put us. If you know God, Daniel in Persia, wherever you put us and we have our fellowship, then we will do fine. Guys, look at it. It's the nature of God that we have found. It's not political. It's spiritual. And, uh, and it has a political effect. But it's not primary, primarily that way. Uh, so the young lady who won the um, U.S. Open yesterday up in New York prayed at the end of the tennis tournament. And some ESPN commentator said she's like, Appreciating in her heart, Tony Dungy said, no, she's praying. She is praying to God. She is worshiping God. The world doesn't like it. The world can't get it. The world is, yeah, the world is run by another spirit. And I'm just saying this because I don't want you and I to have any other mindset and that, then that God is a, is a living, real God who cares about us and loves us more than we could ever imagine. And life with Him is better than anything you could ever find anywhere. And you cannot be tossed around by what the world is saying. People go, oh, I can't believe you people. I, oh, I cannot believe. Do you understand that? Do you understand there are people that don't agree with us? Do you understand that they, they are afraid? Do you understand that they don't understand what, who, what it is that we understand? We, we do not have, we, the, the, these words that bug me, the, this whole thing is such a joke. It's like so ridiculous. But I am afraid, not for myself, I mean in that way, but I am afraid for the church in the United States that they cannot handle the persecution, that they cannot handle what is being said, that they will cave, they will compromise with the world. They will look for saving their mega church. I got to save the mega church because, uh, you know, the world is saying this and I have to save. I, we cannot lose the mega church. And, they, and we say, yeah, maybe the mega church needs to face some persecution and we got to find out who God really is. And God is not a homosexual. And God is not confused about the issue. And God is righteous. And God is not an adulterer. And God is not a liar. Have you found God? Have you tasted God? You will not find God if your God is your emotion or if your God is like the peaceful party and out in the, um, in the uh, garden party where, you know, uh, you just want to find favor with the press or favor with people. You have a rainbow flag? What are you, out of your mind? That's not a church. What is that? I don't know. It's a candy store. What is that? I do not know. That is not that place where God visits his people and anoints his people and trains them. And come on, another good thing about this, I think, is... We got to realize, we got to toughen up. We got to say, we got to realize that 
this is serious. They will eat your lunch. They will cancel you out. They will cancel your bank bank account. They will cancel our website, GGWO. They will not. They we will pay taxes. They will. They, they these people are are after, and especially in the next election. And if if that if they find their way, they will say the Christians are the problem. The Christians are the problem. And uh, and and on the other hand, our Government is so cool, it's so precious because our government is, uh, is uh, we hope it will protect our rights and we'll be able to, but I don't know about the time we live in. I'm not sure. I only know that my, my focus, our focus as a body has to be something like this. And if we can get that right, you'll be on fire. You are on fire for God. And you go through things, and you just say, I trust God. God told me this could happen, but I trust God. And God is filling me with the Spirit. And I'm finding we have the power of God amongst us. So verse 14 says, don't be carried away and uh, don't be deceived. But speaking the truth in love, grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Okay, amen. Uh, okay, that's good. Yeah, I got to say that. I don't know. It was, why not? You know, that's good. Praise the Lord. Hey, good evening. That was great, wasn't it? Have you noticed that uh, when you know something well, you appreciate it? Now, I don't know saxophone, so I don't know what he just did right there, but it sounded good to me. But I'm sure that there's musicians out there that heard that, and they go, that man knows what he's doing. It's true? Robert? Yes, okay. That man knows what he's doing. It was... It was um, it was glorious, glorious. Okay, so just I'll share for a few moments. We'll see how this goes. Let's pray first, just so God can lead us. Father, we come to you, and we just ask that you can bless this. We just ask that you can just continue on with this thought about being transformed and having the mind of Christ. We just ask that the Spirit can minister, speak, and that we can just extract from the word of God the principles that make Christ glorious. We just thank you and praise you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 3. And I just want to talk. We'll see how this goes. <clears throat> I won't talk too long, but Second Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And this is a verse that we know. Very well, but I just want to pull out one principle. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There's one theme that runs through the Bible, and it's this theme of the glory of God. You might see it where 
it would be stated that this is for his name's sake. Psalm 106, verse 8. He has saved them for his name's sake. Namesake means all that God is, his character. Everything in the universe is for his namesake or for his glory. And he saved us so that we could be vessels of his grace, to showcase who he is. And that's an important principle because the whole universe is created to reflect the holiness of God. And the glory of God is just the outworking of the showcasing of that. That the person who has the ability to play the saxophone but never unveils that ability is holy. He's set apart from all others. But when he unveils it in front of us, his holiness is unveiled and his glory is unveiled. And God's desire for us as believers is that he wants us to live a life that reflects his goodness. That he wants us to live a life that we would even give our body over for his purpose and his will because he is that good. That if you were to give your body over for the sake of who God is, that would reflect his goodness, would it not? It would reflect his glory. Matthew 5 verse 16 says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your conduct, your life, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you live your life is to glorify God. And you are a vessel of his glory because the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And it says in 1 John chapter 2 that he has forgiven us for his namesake, for his glory. It's almost as though that we are still in these bodies of sin and death and we still fail just so that his grace and his glory can be on display in our life. So the goal of life is to live for his glory, to show the world how good he is. And we know that. But this verse says that the glory for us is unveiled in the face of Christ. We see that. So when we look at Christ, we see his glory. And how do we see his glory? But we look at his glory in the word. So let's look in Philippians Philippians chapter 2. Have you ever noticed like when you watch a football game, maybe some of you watched the tennis match. I watched the end of it last night. It was amazing. And when you see great feats, especially if you've played the sport before, I've never played tennis, but you can imagine when you see these people do these amazing feats, it's not that they don't have the ability to do it. It's just that they're unveiling it in front of everybody. And we go, ah, that's amazing. No one could pull it off in that situation. And at the end of the match, they'll always come up to the quarterback or the running back, and they'll say, what were you thinking in that moment? And I always love in the NFL with the young guys, they're only like kids, they're kids, they're like 21, 22, and they're trying to find out like what to say. What was I thinking in that moment? Uh, I grabbed the ball and I ran as hard as I possibly could. And yeah, but what else? What were you really thinking in that situation? Uh, I saw a hole and just ran really fast. It's great. That was, and the reporters are always looking. What is the mindset? What is the mindset? And how is God glorified? Is he glorified by the running back or the quarterback? But what is God glorified in? It's, he's glorified in the mindset of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, 
in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. When you become a believer, you all of a sudden have the mind. You think the way that Jesus thinks. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, when you were healing those people, when you were dividing the bread, when you were going to the leper, when you were raising Lazarus from the dead, what was your mindset, Jesus? Look at what he says. I emptied myself and I took on the form of a servant. That's what I was thinking. I took on the form of a servant. Now, the word servant, and I preached on this this morning, but this is an amazing thing. Let me, and this is all I want to say tonight. The word servant is an amazing word. This is a word that's used by the apostles. They love to be called bond servants. James calls himself a bond servant. Peter calls himself a bond servant. Paul calls himself a bond servant. You know what the Greek word is? The Greek word is doulos for bond servant. It means slave. That Christ took on the form of a slave. If you look in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul calls himself and Timothy, what? Slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, in our connotation of slave, that's not a good thing, is it? But to get a biblical understanding of what the word slave is, we need to go back to the Old Testament and understand what slaves are. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 21. And I want to pull this out because this is where his father was most glorified, that he became a slave of the father. Exodus chapter 21. Now, the book of Exodus, we understand that they were slaves in Egypt. But they put the blood on the doorpost and they walked out through the door of their house, out into a whole new dimension. You know what that dimension was? They were no longer slaves of the Pharaoh, but now they are servants of the living God. And right after they exit, God gives them the Ten Commandments. After the Ten Commandments, you know the first subject matter that comes up? How the Israelites should treat their slaves. And you know what God says? You should abolish slavery. That's what he says. In Israel, there's two kinds of slaves. You ready? The first one is an indebted slave, meaning that the slave owed someone money and they couldn't pay it back, so they became an indentured servant. And God says in Exodus chapter 21, he lays it out in verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free. So God says he will serve you for six years to try to pay back the debt, but on the seventh you let him go free, even if you don't think the debt is paid. So the first slave is one who owes something and he gives himself over to the master and he serves him. God says on the seventh year, set him free. But there is another type of slave in the Old Testament. And this is a love slave. This is the slave, look in verse five. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. So this is a slave that served the six years, but loved his master so much that he says, I want to stay with you, master, for life. Can you imagine that? How great is that master? He says, I'm going to entrust my life to you. I know that you love me. I know that you'll care for me. I want to be your love slave for life. Look at this in verse 6. Then the master will agree to it, and he will say, 
shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. Now, this is a strange imagery for us as Westerners. So this what this is saying is that the slave is going to say to the master, I want to be with you for life. I give my service to you for life. The master agrees to it and he brings him to a doorpost. Weird. And his master shall bore his ear through it with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Isn't that amazing? He's going to pierce his ear. So the slave would come, put his ear on the doorpost, and the master would pierce it right through. And that would be a representation that wherever that slave went, they knew he was owned by that master. In the ancient world, the Roman centurions or the soldiers would have tattoos or piercings to represent who they belong to, what platoon or what general. Tattoos are really just a mark of where you belong. And with the Jew, the piercing of the ear was an indication that I am a love slave. Not an indebted slave, but I am a love slave. There's a difference. The indebted slave didn't have it, but the love slave did. And it was out of love. The slave was saying, I love you, master. I don't want to leave you. I want to stay with you. But isn't this interesting? You have a piercing of the ear on a doorpost where there might be a little bit of shedding of blood on the post. Look at it in Psalm chapter 40. And this is a messianic psalm. This is amazing. Look at it in Psalm 40, verse 6. This is Christ. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but, I, but you have given me an open ear. Now follow this with me. Translation is not the best. Open ear, open, and the Hebrew is kur, K-U-R. It means to be... It's a cutting action. It's the stab of the flesh. It's the piercing with a dull instrument. Christ is saying that you have pierced my ear. Father, you have prepared for me a body in Hebrews chapter 10 when Christ quotes this. You have prepared a body for me so that I will be pierced. So it represents that I will be a love slave to the Father. Look at what he says in verse 7. Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Father, you have pierced my ear, which is a representation that I have become a love slave to do the Father's will. When the slave was giving his ear, he was giving his ear so he would listen to the commands of his master for life. In Hebrews, it's interesting, in Hebrews 10, it says, it quotes from Psalm 40, but it doesn't say ear, it says you prepared for me a body. Because when you give the ear to the obedience of the master, you're giving all of yourself to the master. And we can see that when Christ came, he lived in perfect submission to his father. And then he was put on the ultimate doorpost. And he was pierced through with the hand, in the hands and the feet To represent his submission to his father's will. 
Now look at this in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Look at what Christ does. I don't want to lose you guys because I know it's Sunday night. I don't want to lose you. But look at in John chapter 20. In verse 19. When Christ comes to his disciples... On the evening of the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What was he showing? His wounds. What was he showing? That he was a love slave to the Father's will. How is the love of God shown to us? By Christ showing his submission to the Father to go to do the ultimate act of giving his body in full submission for our penalty. The shedding of the blood for the remission of our sins. Christ is our example. He is the perfect love slave to the Father. But he was not indebted to the Father. He didn't do it out of guilt. He didn't do it out of shame. He didn't do it out of his own volition. But willfully, he submitted himself to his Father's will. And through that, he showcased the glory of the love that the Father has to the world. Through his willful submission. That was Christ's mind. Jesus, what were you thinking when you went to the cross? I was thinking that I wanted to glorify the love of the Father showcased through me sacrificing my body so that the world could say how great is the love that the Father has towards the Son and the Son has towards the Father. But look in Galatians 6, and this is, this is why Paul in Romans chapter 12, like, We just heard Romans chapter 12, give your body over, which is your reasonable duty. You know, Romans from chapter 1 all through chapter 11, it is an amazing layout of the reasons why Christ died for you. The reasons why the Father showcases love through the death and resurrection of his Son. And then he gets to chapter 12 and you know what he says? It is your reasonable service to go to the altar so your ear can be pierced, so you will now see Christ as your master. He showed us. He was the example. He had the mind that glorified the Father. Now he's saying to us, this is the mind that glorifies the Son, that you take his mind and become a humble servant and you make yourself a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. And then the Romans 12 is like amazing, like we just heard. But there's a flow in the argument to it. But you have to make up your mind that you're not doing because you're indebted. You're not doing because you have to. But you willfully submit yourself because the love of the master constrains you to do it. I love that we don't serve Christ because we're indebted to him. We're not. We don't do it because we have guilt and we feel like we should try to earn his favor. We're not. The six years is over. You're set free. But the love of the master is so great that it constrains us to the point that I say, where else can I go? I want to serve you. I don't want to live according to my own will. I want your mind, your will, so I can glorify you like you glorified the Father. So look at what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. And this is, this is uh, me last night just kind of, I mean, I love just going through the Scripture And you see these things, and I've never seen this before. In verse 17, Paul says this, and 
And the word is very interesting. From now on, let, uh, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, the word marks, it's a Greek word which means stigma. It means to prick, it means to cut, it means to scar for a service. I mean, what is Paul saying? He goes, do you see the scar of the stoning? Do you see the lashings on my back? That is me giving my ear to the cross and he pierces through and that shows who I belong to. He took pleasure in it. Not in the suffering itself, but what the marks represented. Because his marks showcase his love for Christ. But it wasn't that he loved Christ, but that it was that Christ first loved him. He was a bond slave. Now, are we always willfully submitted? Absolutely not. Right? None of us. But look at, just in closing, Philippians chapter 2. You'll see that over and over again. Paul says, we're bondservants of Christ Jesus. Do you see this mark on me? That is me getting a piercing in the ear to showcase who I serve. But Paul says... In verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not equality, counted equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant or slave. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Jesus, how could you showcase the extreme value and worth and love of your father by giving myself up to the point of death? How could you show, like, if you really valued something, how could you really show to the ultimate by giving your life? I can't do that, but the mind of Christ can. And he's calling us, Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Through his suffering, through him becoming a servant, through him being obedient, God's name is highly exalted above every other name. That's an amazing thing. That's what he's called us to, to be servants. Not so that people can point to our glory, but people can point to the glory that's in us. In closing, uh, I just this came to me. Does, is that good? Do you guys follow that with me? Okay. Uh, there's a documentary. It's maybe some of you guys remember this. I don't know why this. Sometimes you see something and it sticks with you. There was a journalist. Uh, he was he was in the Middle East. I think he was in Syria and he was captured. He was from Boston, New England guy. And he was late 30s, maybe something like that. Maybe you guys remember the story, but he was captured. The, the, the Taliban or ISIS, I don't even remember what the what terrorist organization was, but he was captured and they would capture journalists who were on the front lines and they would take them in and they use them as obviously um, chips or value or trading options, right? So he, he's there for a year and he's with, I think it was 10 or 11 other journalists, like Germans and French and English. This guy was an American guy, and I believe he was a believer because it talks about his faith, but you know how they can be in the sense of maybe portraying 
someone's faith. But he was captured and he was in the prison for a year. And they would come in and they would beat these guys like every day. And they called the group of the guys who terrorized and beat them on a daily basis the Beatles because they're actually British guys. They spoke with a British accent. So they called them the Beatles. Here come the Beatles. And the Beatles would come in and they would call out each individual. They would go and they would just beat them. And they would Charlie horse them. And they, they talk a little bit in the documentary about how they would beat them. And then they would all get thrown back into the prison. But they were an earshot from hearing their cellmates being beaten, knowing they're the next one up. Just imagine that. As the year progressed, the nation's... England and France and Germany and the Netherlands, they worked out deals to release their citizens. But all there was left was a Danish guy and this American guy. The Danish guy was going to be released the last day, so they made sure that they beat him as well as they possibly could. The American guy, his name is James Foley, was in the prison and he's listening to him. Okay, okay. So he's listening to him. And then he goes and he gets beaten and then they get thrown into the cell. And so both of them are on opposite sides of the cell. And they're just in the fetal position. And when they, were, he, they said when they would get beaten that bad, they would go into the fetal position and they just could not even, they didn't even know what to do other than just scream, hold themselves and just try to wait for the pain to subside. So the Danish guy is cursing and he's angry and James comes in and he's over there and he can't even walk. They would Charlie horse him so bad in the legs that they couldn't even walk for hours. So uh, James crawls over military style over to the Danish guy. And the Danish guy is like, get away from me. Stop it. I don't don't say anything to me. And James just goes, are you OK? And the guy's like, just get away from me. Like, I want to get out of here. Don't talk to me. And James goes, hey, it's okay. You're going to get out of here tomorrow. Don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. And then he went back over and he was in pain. Well, the next day, the Danish guy was released. And James was the only one out of that group that wasn't released. And he lost his head the next day. But in, <laughs> it's a great way to end a sermon, right? But the, <laughs> but the amazing thing that touched me about it, and the Danish guy says it in the documentary, was when I realized that he was in as much pain as me, but he didn't look on his own needs, but he looked on the needs that I had. That's the mind of Christ. That is the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is not doing my own will, but it's doing the will of the Father. And it comes through where Paul says, I'm beaten, I'm beaten, I'm stoned, I'm shipwrecked, I'm all of that. But those are glorious marks to showcase that even in my suffering, I have an enduring joy that can take me to a place that I can look upon someone else's need in my own suffering. That's the mind of Christ. 
So what are you thinking about Jesus when you go through all of this? Yeah, there's tribulations, there's trials, but there's a joy. And that joy is that my Father's name will be glorified through my suffering and through my ultimate death so that many can see the goodness and the greatness of the love that the Father has for the world. Amen? Amen. So Lord, we just thank you. Just that even in our suffering or our pain, that we can have our own will and we can complain, but Christ never opened his mouth and complained or mumbled or grumbled, but rather he had this mind that even in the suffering, your goodness would endure and that your name would be glorified. Yes, Father, we just thank you for the mind of Christ that has been freely given to us and that we can grow in it, we can mature in it, and we can understand it in different dimensions so that in Matthew chapter 6, the world can look at us and say, man, their Father in heaven must be glorious because they glorify the heavenly Father in such a way. So we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, they all said, amen. Amen. Amen.